Turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Zechariah, if you're using one of our Bibles in the uh, chair in front of you, it's page 773, 773. If you're looking it up in your Bible, it's uh, the second to last book of the Old Testament, so two books before Matthew. And we're in Zechariah 7 and 8. Some of you are in a position at work or have been where you are responsible to hire people. It's a complex process, isn't it? A lot of of different factors involved in, in hiring. You're looking for skills. You're looking for experience. Because skills and experience... Uh, create competence. Can they do the job? But I know that if you are responsible to hire somebody, you are thinking of an even bigger issue, and that is the issue of character. Because you're going to give this person keys and passwords and company credit card. Can you trust this person? And maybe the most important character issue you're going to ask yourself is, can they get along with people? Are they workable? How, how would they treat fellow workers? How would they treat customers? Will they offend people? Because competency without character is never going to be successful. The same thing is true spiritually. Competency is useless without character. And in our passage today, God is addressing character. And we also find out not only is character the most important thing to God, but we find one of the best places to evaluate our own character. Let's read verses 1 through 4. In the fourth year of King Darius, The word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth month of the ninth month, the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regim Melech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets. Here's their question. Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Uh, We'll stop there. Um, There's a lot of details there, but let's get the uh, historical context. It is the fourth year of King Darius. We happen to know that's 518 B.C. This, you know, the Bible is history. The king is Darius. He's the king of Persia, the superpower of the day, and part of the area he controlled included Israel, and Bethel is a city in Israel. We have been studying the book of Ezra, as you know, so why are we today in the book of Zechariah? Well, they are closely linked, and let's get a little bit of a summary of where we are at in our study of Ezra, and hence uh, the study of Zechariah. So this is kind of that piece of history. There were some Babylonian kings. That Babylon was the superpower, Nebuchadnezzar being the most notable king. And then Cyrus took over, uh, and there was now a Persian dynasty. In the history of Israel, behind our passage, in 605 B.C. was the first of three deportations. That's the Babylonian 
exile. Because of their sin, God eventually disciplined them and allowed so many of the people, tens of thousands of the Jews, to be taken into captivity or exile into Babylon. But we know that God said it's going to be 70 years. And so when the 70 years complete were completed, indeed, what we found at the beginning of the book of Ezra is that God arranged that Cyrus the king actually commissioned the Jews to go back and do what? Rebuild the temple. Because the key event spiritually really was that in 586, in that third uh, movement of Nebuchadnezzar into the country, he destroyed and burnt the temple of God. So God was sending them back to rebuild the temple. That's what Ezra's chapters 1 through 4 has been about. And so about a year after getting there, they began to rebuild the temple, but then discouragement and fear and self-interest set in and there was a 15-year delay where after laying the foundations of the temple the thing they went back to do they stopped and so God stepped in and in the opening verses of chapter 5 we find that God sent two prophets Haggai and Zechariah to Tell them, get going on the project. This is what I delivered you from Persia back to Israel to do. Go rebuild the temple. And so the ministry of Haggai, we took a little break and went in to see what it was that according to Ezra 5.1, Haggai said. That's why we have the book of Haggai. And those two chapters tell us what Haggai said to get them going. Well, it worked, and they responded to God. And the temple project was restarted in 520 B.C., And last week we realized they completed it four years later in the sixth year of King Darius. So there is this four-year span of time in which they now do what God sent them to do. But we noticed something in chapter 6, verse 14 last week. Everybody who is doing the will of God needs encouragement to keep doing the will of God. And so God sent them, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, again. And in fact, now in the book of Zechariah, particularly about a chapter and a half, we find the very words that uh, God told Zechariah to tell the people to keep them going on the project. And so that's why we are in Zechariah 7 and 8. This is what he told them to keep them going on the project. They were doing the right thing. And God says, while you're doing the right thing, let me address your motives, because I want to address your character. So, as we can see in verse 2 and 3, the people of Bethel came, and they asked what seems to be a, a good, legitimate question. Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month like we've been doing all these years? Their idea was, Now that we're obeying God, we should be rejoicing. In fact, uh, at the beginning of this restart, they were rejoicing. There was celebration. They did the Passover. So should we keep mourning what has been lost when we actually should be celebrating? It, It seems like a very, very good question. Here's how God answers, and it might seem harsh to us. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, Zechariah says, ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth, and he adds the seventh month, for the past 70 years during that exile, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? 
Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev south and the western foothills were settled? So before this all came down, before, before the exile, before the destruction of Jerusalem, the prophets have been telling you the same thing that I'm telling you now. We find out there wasn't just a fast going on in the 5th, but in the 7th month. And if you glance ahead to chapter 8, verse 19, the fasts were actually the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months. There were four fasts that had been taking place. All of them were related to that monumental, horrible event of the destruction of the temple of God in 586 B.C. The history, in, in summary, is this. And we can kind of see why they had these four fast times during those 70 years. In the previous year, in the 10th month, is when Nebuchadnezzar first began to besiege, surround the city of Jerusalem. Then in the 4th month, he finally broke through the walls. A month later, in the 5th month, is when he destroyed and burnt the temple. And then the 7th month is when, after the kings had been taken to exile, the Persians sent commissioned that one of the Jews would be the governor, a man named Gedaliah, 2 Kings 25, and Gedaliah was assassinated. It was like the final blow. In fact, that, that indicated the end of Israel ruling itself. From then on, others would, would rule over them. In fact, that wasn't changed until 1948 when Israel became a nation again in more recent history. So it was such a sad time that even today some Orthodox Jews celebrate the fast of Gedaliah, that seventh month thing, and it actually occurs this year in October 2. These sad events were so momentous in the nation of Israel that, that uh, they, they marked them. That, so think of 70 years, and four times a year they're reminded of how horrible this is that our temple was destroyed and we're suffering the consequences of sin. So they're saying, should we keep doing that? They seem to tire of it. They seem to think it had run its course. And God seems to agree, but God doesn't say, yeah, go ahead, stop. Start rejoicing. Because as God always does, he always says, let's go a little deeper and probe even your motives for why you fasted. And so we find these statements, was it for me you fasted? Verse 6, or verse 5. And in verse 6, he takes it further, says, what about your feasting? Wasn't that just for yourself? They were doing the right thing. They were back in gear serving the purpose God sent them to serve, to rebuild the temple. But he says, why were you mourning? He suggested they were, they were mourning the consequences of their sin. But because they seemed to be self-focused, it was more about regret than it was renewal. They were mourning the consequences of their sin without acknowledging the cause of that consequence. So in other words, it wasn't true repentance. To just simply mourn how bad my life has become is not repentance. Repentance is seen, repentance means to turn. 
It's the transformation. It's having a new direction. Maybe some of the Israelites were truly repentant. I'm sure there were, but God is pointing out the problem. Then he probes further. He says, let's not just talk about fasting. Let's talk about your feasting. See, the fasts were things that God had never instructed them to do. They came up with that on their own. So you might, well, that, they, then they shouldn't have been doing it. But God says, actually, the activity is not the problem. Because he goes on to the feasts. These are things that God had appointed them to do. The three major feasts of Israel were, were his instructions. But he says, you might have the same problem there. Your, your fasting was more external instead of internal. So is your feasting. In other words, they've both been about you. Feasting was meant to be an invitation to praise God. And he says, it's been for yourselves. The implication is you just made it a big party and you indulged yourselves. For some reason this week it made me think back to some of the fellowship events in the church where I grew up. And uh, we had very good food. And one time I remember a little snapshot of there's three or four of us boys, probably 10 or 11 years old. And whatever the event was, it was about pie. And, and everybody was supposed to bring pie. I don't know if it was after a meal or what it was, but somehow the three or four of us found ourselves in the kitchen unsupervised <laughs> with all of these nice pies cut into six pieces. Obviously, we should have a contest. <laughs> and we did. And I won. Five pieces. Why did God prescribe feasts for Israel? It wasn't about eat more. <laughs> Even though I think it was God's will at feasts that they would eat more. Okay? But the reason you would eat more, what's the motive behind it is, oh, look what you have done for us, Lord. I think it's something, frankly, we have to be careful every time we enjoy fellowship, which means food at Open Door Bible Church, right? <laughs> to always ask ourselves, this is an indication of God's goodness to me. And enjoy it with a heart of praise. Was this idea that uh, fasting and feasting could be selfish, was that a new idea? No, that's what he says. Is, uh, isn't this what I told your forefathers probably just a couple generations previous. It, when you were still at peace and be all, before all this happened, didn't I, didn't I tell them that? An example of that is what uh, God said through the prophet Isaiah, more 700-something B.C. He says, I hate your new... This is God speaking. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. God had instructed them to do them. But he says, I've come to hate them because they've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Here's what I really want. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. In other words, you're, you're going through the physical motions of religion, but your heart is not transformed. And God says, I tire of that. Hate is a serious word. And so let's Think of a blunt application. Coming to church can be repulsive to God if we think that coming to church makes us holy. If coming to church is like, that's our proof. That's my badge that I earned. That's my star on my chart. I come to church. If we ignore the sin issues of our hearts. 
God's not only unimpressed, he is burdened and weary of that. If you picture God through the centuries, he has seen so much religious activity. Even, even among those who would call themselves Christians for any reason, how many times has he seen people uh, go to church, walking, maybe horse and buggy, maybe driving a car, and yet be completely unwilling to address issues of pride or deceit or gossip or anger or lust or bitterness. And he says, I tire of that. Please don't, God says, please don't compensate for internal sin with external religious practices. The men of Bethel who came with this question might be thinking by now, I wish I'd never asked. (laughs) Because they certainly got more of an answer than the question they had asked, but God is saying to them, your resume looks fine, but your character references are lacking. And God is the only character reference that matters. And he is looking at the inside. So, if the inside is what matters, is there any way that what is happening on the inside becomes obvious on the outside. Here's a question. When is our internal character most externally visible? The answer, as God now gives a second revelation to these people through Zechariah, the answer is that our internal character becomes most visible through our relationships through our relationships. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. And finally this one. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. Wow. How we treat people is a true measure of godliness. That's where, that's where inner character becomes externally visible. The better you know someone, the more suddenly character floats to the top. The first three are more about actions. Uh, justice, render true judgments. The issue is truth. The, the, the context is more like a, like a courtroom, though few towns of Israel would have had formal courtrooms, but... The city square was a place where the elders of the city would render judgments. And so if you had a complaint that you said someone stole your sheep, that's where you would take your case. If you're part of the community, you would begin to know by reputation if someone who's making complaints is likely to be telling the truth. And you would begin to assess whether or not those who are responsible to render judgment are truthful or corrupt. Are they just... uh, siding all the time with the powerful and the rich? Are they overlooking offenses of their friends? This issue comes up repeatedly in the Old Testament about truthful and not corrupt justice systems. The second one, show mercy and compassion to each other. So truth is the first issue, grace is the second issue. How often do we see those characteristics Paired like, a, like two sides of a coin. They are not contradictory. So God says, I need truth that you, you speak the truth about sin. That's always what God's word does. It speaks truth about sin. It doesn't, doesn't pull any punches. 
Meanwhile, it is not contradictory that God is also the most, and the, the infinite example of grace. Totally about truth, completely about grace. They pair perfectly. Are we gracious in the way we treat people? Do we give people the benefit of the doubt? Grace is generous with the faults of others. Grace realizes it's usually not my job to correct somebody else's faults. Grace realizes that the difficult people in my life are probably just indicating they've had a difficult life. Grace forgives, even when not asked by apology. Because love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4.8. Grace does not mean that I, on my own, can somehow restore every relationship because reconciliation is a two-way street. But it's not a contradiction that grace is a one-way street. So we cannot restore everything that might be broken relationally, but we must be the one with grace open to reconciliation. Grace has always been flowing downhill from the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So the first half of that verse, so well known, is that grace is coming towards us. Christ died for the sins of the whole world, paying the penalty, offering reconciliation to all, but only those who believe are the ones who will be reconciled when they put their faith in Christ. But we are never more like God than when we let grace flow from him to us and to others. Matthew 5, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Love your enemies that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You're never more like your heavenly dad than when you show grace. And the, the, third, the third statement here, do not oppress. It's a, kind of a footnote to the grace issue because grace is not only what we do, grace is seen in what we don't do. Grace means that we don't take advantage of those who are somehow less powerful, less popular, uh, less wealthy. We don't leverage when we show grace. We don't take advantage. So the people of Bethel had come with a question about religion, really. Are we doing religion right? And God says there's a far more important question. Are you doing relationships right? Because that exposes your true inner character. Probably the relationship in life that exposes our character most of all is marriage. Because from uh, day one of, of living together, you begin to see everything about that person. The idiosyncrasies that are annoyances but don't really matter and the character issues that are hurtful and do matter. A warning to observe and choose wisely, obviously, looking for character because character is what will always matter. But the most important character issue is the issues that we face ourselves. It's, it's what we see in the mirror. I think that's why God just consistently addresses it. That's why he 
he took this opportunity of a question is to kind of turn that mirror and say, take a look at yourself. So how can we do that? Just some samples, okay? Relationships are how character becomes visible. What makes me angry? Often reveals what is too important to us. What makes me angry? Do I apologize eagerly? That's an indication of grace that I, I desire not winning, but I desire healed relationships. What's the character of my closest friends? We are to be friendly to all. But our closest friends are generally the closest to us in character because we, uh, you know, we, we, we support each other's views, right or wrong. What and who do I laugh at? How does that expose something in us? What's funny? How do I treat the waitress? In the dynamic of a restaurant, for those 45 minutes or whatever, no matter what your social status is in life, for that period of time, you are superior and they're supposed to serve you. So when you're in that position, because you get the money, how do you treat those who are beneath you for that period of time at least? Uh, do I exaggerate? Do I keep promises? This is the truth issue. Why would I exaggerate? What is it about me that wants to exaggerate? Why, why would I not keep promises? Will I fudge the truth to sell or buy something? Craigslist, marketplace. What am I saying about my, my greed? How do I relate to authority or traffic laws? What's my attitude to those in authority? Do I listen well to my spouse, friends, or mostly try or wish I could talk about myself? You know, you find yourself just not even listening to what they said because you're so eager to say what you want to say. How do I talk about people? It says so much of how we think about them and character just seeps out of us as names come up. Do I have a gracious attitude towards people when hurt? Giving the benefit of the doubt, saying, I don't know what this person's going through. Do I try to get even? Do I wish I could get even? The, the list, you could just keep making your own list. It's endless the ways we can look at ourselves. And, and all of these are things that, you know, if you read the book of Proverbs or, or Epistles, especially the last half of anything Paul wrote, you'll find him addressing these kinds of issues all the time. Character self-tests that boil down kind of to what we find at the end of verse 10. In your hearts... Three things that would be in your actions, but then he says, in your hearts, do not think evil or plot evil of each other. The, the Hebrew term could be plot, as if you're really planning to do something, or it could be just thinking you just wish you could do something. <laughs> so what is going on in your hearts? Is bitterness growing in your hearts, in your relationship? You, you know the red flag? that bitterness is growing is when you become focused on certain people and their faults. When, when, when your thoughts just keep mulling over a person or persons and their faults, be careful that there is not a root of bitterness growing. 
someone has hurt you indeed, they've cheated you, they've truly failed you, you can't deny the facts. But do we relinquish control and say, you know, God said vengeance is mine. Or we let those thoughts against others harden and control us. Just to make sure that the Israelites took this seriously, God has another revelation uh, for, uh, or more to this revelation in verse 11, where he again takes the Israelites back to their recent history. Verse 11. So he's saying to them at the end of verse 10, in your hearts don't think evil of each other. But then he says in verse 11, but they, who's they? Your ancestors, they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit. This was, this was, God was speaking through his spirit, through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, this is God saying, when I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where there were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. It's like God is expressing his own grief at what he had to do in discipline. Their hearts were hard. If you think about the references to hearts in verse 10 and 11, you see that back to back, There are heart issues, but there's a different cast on them, isn't there? In your hearts, relationships don't think or plot evil towards one another. What's the problem? The problem is that you have a stubborn heart towards God. So when you see you have a heart problem towards people, ding, ding, there is a heart problem with God. You cannot separate your relationship with God from your relationship with people. You can't say, I know it's hard for me to get along with people, but I'm good with God. That's a lie. Because our character is seeping through our relationships, indicating something that God wants to draw our attention to. And so God says, I had to discipline your ancestors. They wouldn't listen, so I didn't listen. God has voluntary selective hard hearing. I won't listen till you deal with what I've told you about. The main point is relationships matter to God because they expose our true character. So don't run from character relationship problems. God, God wants to use them. God wants to use relationship struggles, and we all have them, to do something in us he could do in no other way. As parents, we know that our little children need to play with other little children. Siblings, playground, school, ah, that's going to be good for them because they've got to learn how to, you know, give in. They've got to learn how to uh, apologize. They need to learn how to forgive. Because if a child never learns to apologize or give in, high likelihood they'll grow up into an adult who doesn't apologize or give in. God sees us as his children and says, I put you into relationships because I care about you so much, I want to shape you. So for many, he says, I'll make sure you get married because there's nothing that's going to expose the rough edges of our life like marriage. 
Maybe this afternoon you need to give your spouse a hug and say, I'm so glad we struggle. God is, God is still working in me. So what did God want them to do? The men of Israel. Specifically the people of, of the men of Bethel. Go home, you know, feel guilty. Slink back in town and know that I put you in your place. No, why did God tell them that? Because God's goal for us is always to help and not to harm. Always. In fact, if you have a problem processing that, it's your view of God that needs, needs work. God is always seeking to help, not harm. It's always his grace, though it's sometimes a severe mercy. So that's why he gave it. So does God, is God offering any, any help any, any provision by which we can grow in our character through our relationships. There's, a, there's a, a wonderful reference in verse 12 to the fact that the word of God comes by the spirit of God. You see that? The words the Lord Almighty sent by his spirit. Holy spirit the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament differently than today because today, in fact today, we should be so privileged to realize that now the Holy Spirit dwells inside of each of us. We are at such an advantage, but the Spirit was at work through His Word. How does God work in our character today? The Spirit's at work through His Word. And Hebrews 4.12 speaks of how the Word of God is like a a sword piercing and and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when we're in the Word of God, it may not seem like dynamic stuff most of the time, but little by little, we begin to see our heart the way God sees it. And then, about the time we're feeling desperate, right, then we read about the resource of the Holy Spirit that God indwells us by his Spirit, and he has given us the capacity to be transformed. And so in the New Testament, we see there's hope for our character if we are living dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And so Galatians 4, those familiar words, says the fruit of the Spirit In other words, trying harder, feeling guiltier, being down on myself does not correct character issues. The Spirit does. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you realize how many of those character issues are actually relational issues? Virtually all of them. I mean, they, they can, a lot of them can go both ways. But I just underlined the ones that are basically exposed in our relationships. Love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Isn't that where all those things just start to go? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's when we're relating to each other we discover our desperate dependence on the Holy Spirit. So we're going to have to, frankly, live, walking in the Spirit is a very realistic way of living that we have a conscious, continual, step-by-step realizing I am dependent on the Spirit. Otherwise, I'm going to continue to be just like I have been in my flesh. And so I will need to continually depend upon the Spirit. But that also tells us there's incredible hope. The conversation is not quite over. It's been a hard conversation that God has had with them. That's why I think it's important to see some additional things that he said to these particular people at this time, 518 B.C., that gives them great hope. 
And so we're going to look at verses 9 through 17 that, uh, where the mood changes. The book of Zechariah, for the most part, and that's why we're not studying the whole thing because it doesn't all relate quite directly to Ezra. The book of Zechariah is mostly about a far future time, the, the prophetic understanding that we have of the millennium. Uh, while the people were coming back from exile and, and good things were happening, they were rebuilding the temple, God chose that time to send Zechariah to say, you, you have no idea how good my plans are for you as a nation. And there's going to be a time when this is going to be this, and this is going to be, and this is going to be. And most of Zechariah is about the far future, this ideal time of blessing upon Israel. But within Zechariah, we have found chapter 7 and now a, a chunk of chapter 8 that is clearly directed to them at that time. In fact, there's that signal in verse 9, chapter 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. You who now hear these words spoken by the prophets who were there when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty, that was like 18 years previous, let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built. So whatever God is saying at this time, he says, I am intending this to encourage you who are building the temple. But it's encouragement I'm on your side like a loving parent. He has talked straight when he needed to, but he says, I want you to know I am on your side. I'm not against you. You who were there, be strong. He does not correct them for what they were doing. In fact, they were doing exactly what he told them to be doing. And it, that, didn't, that didn't escape God's notice. So we know this came in, in the fourth year of Darius. We know this is midway between the four-year obedient rebuilding of the temple. So he says, keep it up. Be strong. Rebuild the temple. You're doing the right thing. I just want to make sure that you're looking at your motives. I want to make sure you're looking at your heart. I want to make sure you're thinking about character. And the way you're going to think about character is by thinking about your relationships. So he says, I'm going to work in you towards a good end. And I think if God were speaking in some you know, verbal specific way to open door right now, it'd be something like that. He'd say, keep it up. There's, there's so many good things that you are doing. You, 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 you come together and, and you want to worship me and you, you, you plug in and you serve and you give sacrificially. You want to expand your impact and that, that's all great. But just as you do those things, don't forget that your character seen in your relationships will be where the hard work of the Spirit is going to take place. So don't just let going to church become a nice habit. The kind of, you know, lulls you to sleep spiritually. Let it become something that where you, you uh, dare to get close enough to other imperfect people that you rub shoulders and rub each other wrong and you can embrace other sinners in grace, because that is what I'm producing. You're never more like me, your father, than when you do that. And then he says, you will see that I desire to bless you. Verse 12. The seed will grow well. The vine will yield its fruit. The ground will produce its crops. And the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. 
As you have been an object of cursing among the nations, and that's what it was like for those 70 years, O Judah and Israel, so will I save, meaning deliver you, and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. So, so keep it up, and then God, God exposes, reveals something else that is his design when he works in our heart, works in our character, and then as we respond, he begins to bless us. He says, it's so that you will be a blessing. What God is bringing up is what he said when he launched his special people Israel. The nation of Israel began in Genesis 12 with the person of Abraham, where the first the first Jew was not a Jew, but rather from the person of Abraham. He called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And chapter 12 tells us how he commissioned him to lead the nation we now know of Israel. About 2000 BC, he said to him, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Here's my reason. So that you will be a blessing. God, God works through this process of multiplication. I bless you so you can bless others. Everyone likes blessings. There are so many ways it seems like in the Christian world we have short-circuited God's plan for blessing. The most egregious way would simply be that I somehow have the right to ask God, and he, if I ask him in faith, he's got to give me blessings so I can enjoy blessings. Entirely self-centered prosperity concept. Him blessing me, I indulge and enjoy. And so we, in our attempt to be biblical, hopefully take it to the next step. God blesses me, so that I can praise him, because he should be praised for his blessing, right? Let's take a look at that, that concept of the blessing cycle. We say, I live to please God, get my heart right, and character, and work on stuff, and got a long life to address my character. And, and so God blesses me, and by blessing, I'm just not specifically here, whether it's physical or financial or spiritual or opportunities or impact. There's just so many different ways that God distributes blessing, but God blesses obedience so that then I can thank and praise him. And so sometimes we think that's the complete loop. It's a good loop. It's all true. What this verse has told us here, though, is that there's more to it than that. That's not enough. What this verse has told us is that the blessing cycle is that I live to please God. He blesses me. I thank and praise him. I use my blessings to bless others. Now the loop is closed. And so Israel and us, we're being forced to process this idea that how has God blessed me? What are those areas, physical, spiritual, material, opportunities, giftedness, whatever it might be. What are those? How has God blessed me now? How can I be a blessing to others? Because now, not only have I praised and thanked him, but now I've accomplished his purpose for my blessing. O Jude and Israel, so I will deliver you, and you will be a blessing. So don't be afraid. 
Let your hands be strong. And the, and the, and, and the final part of this very personal uh, message to the uh, people of men of Bethel, it seems to be a bit of a review. Verse 14, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster upon you and showed no pity when your fathers angered me, says the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to do good. Make sure this is in your view of God. I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and, and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgment in your, in your courts. Do not plot evil against your neighbor. And do not love to swear falsely. I hate all of this. Make sure that you're looking at the character issues because failure in character is what repulses God. The men of Israel, specifically Bethel that day, certainly went home a bit soberly. They didn't get maybe the answer they expected. They got a whole lot more. Their initial question was, should we stop fasting because it's a time of joy. They were actually right. But God says before you can really enjoy that, you're going to have to address the internal issues. Verse 18 and 19. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth, tenth month will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, kind of like if you love truth and peace, address the inside and I delight to bless you so that you can enjoy relationships, enjoy me, and enjoy however I have equipped you to bless others. Let's pray. Father, we know you're always working in us because... Um, your spirit indwells us. Your spirit uh, illumines your word to us when we read or, or, or hear or discuss it with others. And we thank you for the work of your spirit today in, in our hearts. We pray that we would be responsive and that our, our uh, view of you would be clear that you are a good and gracious God seeking to refine, grow, and use us to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.